Here at Country Roads magazine for 40 years, with curiosity as our guide, we've been wandering the back roads of Mississippi and Louisiana, discovering and sharing Southern culture's most compelling stories. It's a chance to listen closer and discover more. And maybe laugh a little too. I'm James Fox-Smith, publisher. And I'm Jordan LaHaye-Fontenot, managing editor. And I'm Alexandra Kennan, arts and entertainment editor. And this is Detours, a new podcast from your friends at Country Roads Magazine. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Detours. Hey, Alex. Hey, Jordan. Hey, James. Hey, Alex. Hey, y'all. What are we talking about today? I think we're talking about myths and legends, right? Ooh, I think we're getting dark and creepy today. Yeah, well, it's the one subject in which if you uh, publish a magazine in Louisiana, you will simply never run out of subject matter. So Country Roads has been publishing an annual myths and legends issue for at least 15 years, if not longer than that. And I was thinking about that when we started talking about this episode uh, and was considering some of the stories that we've written about over the years. And I'm beginning to realize that I'm firmly of the opinion that we will simply never run out of subject matter, Mm-mm. this being, the, this being the, the state that it is. No way. And thinking back on some of them over the years, of course, we've done the Lugaru, the Chupacabra of Mississippi legend, the legend of Evangeline. Alex, your Pascagoula alien abductions of 1973 was a highlight of 2021. Goat Castle legend of Natchez, Mississippi. The Honey Island Swamp Monster. The true tale of the Shania Caminata hurricane of 1893. The list just goes on and on and on. But we've been doing every October, stands to reason, for uh, since the early 2000s, Country Roads has done this Myths and Legends issue. And so we thought that this week we'd get together and talk a little bit more about the stories that ended up in the October Myths and Legends issue for 2022, since that was a little bit different from any we've done before, because it was all about what? Serial killers. The serial killers episode. Is that really a Country Roads topic? I don't know. What do you think? We weren't sure when we um, first embarked on that. Uh, Yeah. We kind of came about it around on a roundabout way. We um, were thinking of different ways to approach this issue. Um, we spoke for quite a while about making it a conspiracy theories issue. Um, maybe next year. Yeah, we maybe were like, next what year. Could go wrong, right? uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so what we we did what we often do, and we're trying to brainstorm things a few months ahead of time as we send out a call for pitches. Um, and pretty much immediately, we got a pitch from one of our favorite freelancers. Um, Chris Turner-Neal, who we are so glad to have with us in the studio today. Uh, Chris is the current senior managing editor at 64 Parishes. He also used to be the arts and entertainment editor here at Country Roads and continues to freelance for us all pretty pretty frequently. Um, it's an incestuous and very small family, the uh, Louisiana uh, cultural journalism pool, I suppose. The, the children all have just one big tooth. <laughs> Chris, we're so glad you joined us today. How are you? Good. I'm glad to be here. So we brought Chris in today to um, talk about his story as well as uh, we'll be also talking about Alex's story and mine. The three of us each covered a historical serial killer here in Louisiana. Um, 
And it all goes back to Chris's pitch. Uh, Chris pitched us a story about a young African-American woman who is believed to have killed up to 35 people. But Chris doesn't think she really did. And so that he kind of pitched that to us as a conspiracy theory, actually. Um, And but it got us on this different train of thought. Um, Alex started bringing up ideas about the Axeman murders of New Orleans, which in, like brought us through a whole nother editorial meeting that lasted maybe a few hours. Um, yeah, this was a lot of editorial meetings went into this one, more than usual. Yes. And so then we had two stories about serial killers and good things come in threes. So we had to come up with a third one. Or bad things. Or bad things. Um, and I had just happened to, somebody had recommended, I listened to a podcast about a serial killer from my hometown just a few weeks before that, his name is Uzi Vedrine. And that's um, from Evangeline Parish. Evangeline Parish, right? Bill Platt, yes. And I'll actually name the person who recommended it to me because she, when she saw the story come out, she says, you should have, I can't believe you didn't give me any credit. But uh, <laughs> City of Roban recommended the Southern Mysteries podcast that I listened to, the story of Uzi Vedrine. Um, and I had a lot of questions about it, so it just proved the perfect opportunity to bring that into this issue. But it seemed a little dark, didn't it? I mean, when we're talking about, all right, you know, sometimes if you're talking about, oh, I don't know, the Honey Island Swamp Monster mm-hmm. or Lou Garou, they're just like, oh, sweet, little bedtime stories to terrify the children into good behavior. But then we're like, okay, but now we're doing an entire issue of um, a cultural magazine about people that have hacked people to death with with garden implements. And that just felt like a little bit of a departure from form for Country Roads. Yes. But that's the point is we want to keep our – we want to keep surprising our audience. Right. Possibly horrifying our audience. (laughs) And this seemed like just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Yeah. And, you know, people have been really into true crime lately. I mean, and really for the past past decade probably people have been really into that – uh, so it seemed very fitting that one of our first episodes for this podcast, which is one of the best uh, venues to list to hear true crime, we felt like we might as well bring these stories to you guys um, through this medium. Let's do so it. So let's get into let's it. Let's go. Who are we going to talk about first? Uh, we will talk about Uzeeb first, the Evangeline Parish serial killer. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and Jordan, that was that was your story, and that was one that I had never heard about before. Even as, as someone who used to like give true crime and paranormal tours, I had never encountered Uzeeb, um, and I found that one really fascinating. But could you tell us just to start out a little bit about who he was? Yeah. Um, so Uzeeb, he was just this very kind of average guy. He was born in eighteen ninety eight to a farming family in Bill Platt, Louisiana, a very rural area. Um, he had pretty average upbringing there. Um, he was one of 10 kids. Um, and people, as he grew up, people kind of thought he was strange, but like didn't think too much of it. He faced a lot of financial hardship, um, nothing super unusual. But in 1924, he was 26 years old and he was arrested as the main suspect in a really scandalous local murder, the sheriff's son. Um, and very shortly after that, he con- he actually confessed. And so not but not only did he confess to this murder, he confessed to four more and just kind of shocked the parish in that manner. But also the world, you know, back then people didn't. Like the word serial killer was not a thing. Um, They didn't have this concept of someone who does this um, in a repetitive manner, really. Um, 
And they just, if you look through the newspaper archives from around the country, everyone's talking about Uzib. Um, he totally shocked like the nation. And part of it was his personality. He just like very straightforward was like, I killed them and I liked it. Yeah, he was kind of a showman, wasn't he? Yes. So then he also became, he, he was only actually charged for that one murder of the sheriff's son, but his character had become so dark and people had just associated him so like as evil. So Evangeline Parrish had never publicly ex- or um, legally, legally executed anyone before. He was going to be the first. They sentenced him to death. Back then, when you were sentenced to death, the act was carried out in your parish where you committed the crime. Yeah, that was a fascinating thing. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. About, but yeah, if you got if you were sentenced, it was done in the parish in which you were sentenced, or was it where the crime had actually? Occurred? I think I believe it was when the crime where the crime took place. Um, wow! So they actually built the gallows just for him, and they were never used again. There were other executions later, but they came with the um, electric chair. So a big part of the research on this that you did was archival, right? Yes. I mean, there's nobody around from that who can actually tell you a first-hand account. Right. But newspapers were were the main source of record at the time, and you did a lot of archival research. Tell us how that went. Yeah, it was great fun. Um, there was a ton – I mean, there's so much – people all – like I said – Newspapers all over the country were writing about him, telling his story and various degrees of accuracy, I'm sure. Um, but really painting him out to be this real, real uh, sociopath. I'll uh, read one quote from a from one of the articles that was just kind of shows the the um, public perception of him. But this reporter was calling before they officially had sentenced him to death. He was calling for them for the court to do so. And he said that. Yuzib deserved a quick avenging by due and legal process of the law, quick as in lightning-like rapidity, with no plea for clemency, no think of my dear old mother, no insanity camouflage, no legal technicity, because he that murderously sheddeth man's blood, so shall his blood be shed. Um, so it was very intense about how much people people were rallying behind this whole thing. Um, but more fascinating one of the things that makes Uzi really fascinating is that he wrote his own memoir while and when he was sentenced to death he asked those his request was to have time and materials to write his story and he actually didn't even write it himself he had to get help because he couldn't speak english or write in english so they had to get the officers to do it um and the book was distributed beyond acadiana too wasn't it i mean he kind of did garner a national audience yeah, there were advertisements in the newspapers for this um, for this book, and they were and it was sold. The pub date was the day that he was executed. I was going to say, was it published posthumously? So yes, it went out. They so basically the day he was executed, he um, it happened. He actually requested that after he died to be laid out in his coffin in the public square so that people could come and see his body. And so while that was going on, they were also selling his book. You you can't get better marketing. Than no, you really no. can't. <laughs> this is absolutely this is, not. Where does where does uh, sociopath meet marketer? Oh, that where one thing ends and the next begins. I don't. It's remember. a fine line. <laughs> Appearing live in a very limited sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, he, and his. I mean, he asked. 
one of the things people talk about a lot about him is how when he was when it was happening the day of he was really re- requesting all these photographs from the newspapers he really wanted to be remembered um and he like he had the rope around his neck and asked them like please take a picture of me right now so he lives on and he his memoir like describes in great detail his whole his life and he he blames much of what he did on his poor circumstances which um a lot of people have poor circumstances one of the main things he blames it all on is whiskey he talks quite a lot pages and pages and pages of how whiskey is evil and makes you do evil things yes um, yes this execution not brought to you by whiskey <laughs> he said that on uh, right before he went, that was one of the last things he really put forth to the crowd was whiskey is the devil's drink. Um, I don't know about y'all, but I've had a few whiskey cocktails in my day, and that's not one thing that I've thought about. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I I will wrap this up, but I'll leave you guys with one quote from a newspaper article that I read on the day that he was executed. Um that I thought was somewhat beautifully written, interesting, just says a lot about the time and about how the, this sort of thing captured the imagination of the people in Evangeline Parish. They were here in thousands, these French Americans of the Southland, Arcadi, from the far corners of the parish of Evangeline, named for Longfellow's Maid of Sorrows. They were here from everywhere, gathered in the dusty streets, filling the courtyard, standing alongside the stockade built on the east side of the jailhouse. They talked their French or their patois that compromises with English. They were excited. It is their nature to be excited even over small things. But this, this solemn taking of a man's life, is no small thing. When whispers from those nearest the stockade carried the word, the sheriff has just cut the rope. They tarried for a brief half hour in conversation, talked over the crime, told how they heard the trap fall, that shot of the soul of Yuzib Vidrin into eternity. Their vengeance sated, they turned their steps homeward, thinking on the way not of Yuzib, as all spoke of him, but of Madame Vidrine, the mother of a son who sowed to the wind. That's, uh, <laughs> I tell you what, it, it raises the bar on those of us that publish words for a living. Yeah. You've got, you got to keep the music in it, because if that was the local paper writing at the time, uh-huh. then they knew their craft, didn't the they? The newspaper doing crime reporting is getting yeah. this poetic. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think this is an Associated Press style these days anymore, unfortunately. No, no that would be edited out in a heartbeat. <laughs> You're quite right. That's a cool story. So all of the links to these stories we'll include in the show notes for the episode. Mm, yes. Um, so that published and appeared in the October 2022 edition of Country Roads, alongside two other stories of equal uh, and possibly surpassing notoriety, including, Alex, your story for the Axeman of New Orleans. The Axeman of New Orleans, a little bit more notorious, uh, I would argue, just because he is so sort of infiltrated thoroughly into the national and international sort of public consciousness of lore. Um, But... Despite all of that, we still do not know who the Axeman of New Orleans was or even how many victims he had definitively. You know, most people point to around a dozen, but it really depends who you ask and and what records you look at and what murders you attribute to him. Yeah, like, Chris, did you grow up having heard this story? Was it familiar to you uh, before you kind of arrived and dove deep into New Orleans culture? In very general terms, like it's on the list of like, killers but it's it's not it's like you have the very basic throw out of 
oh, there's someone stalking around New Orleans with an axe, claimed to be a demon. Then you have to jazz him away. And that's, you know, and then on to the next creepy vignette. Yeah. I mean, that's the gist of it. And that's more or less what I would tell tourists on my ghost tours back when I did that for a living. And I thought that that was kind of the gist of the actual story. Until I started digging into the Times Picayune archives and the uh, States Item archives and another contemporary newspaper of the early 20th century in New Orleans, even the West Bank Herald. Um, and then kind of like Uzeb, the Axeman actually got coverage pretty far beyond New Orleans as well. You know, I found articles and papers from up in Illinois, um, over in Texas, pretty far covering it. But I think, too, now that it's been on American Horror Story Coven, he, uh, he sort of joined Delphine LaLaurie into that like nebula mythologized television camp. And uh, and then there's the jazz element, too, right? Which I think people really like to kind of latch on to. Because, um, of course, jazz was born in New Orleans. We love jazz music. But then to have this, like, horrifying, violent murderer associated with this art form, I mean, once again, you, you kind of don't get better marketing than that, in a way. You couldn't write a better script, could you, for a for a horror story than this particular one. I don't think so. It sounds like it's just in and of New Orleans. Right. And you sort of wonder where, you know, the notoriety of New Orleans, which comes first, right? Stories like this that are associated with it or the notoriety of the city that produces stories like this. Mm -hmm. It's it's each is sort of in and of the other in a way mm. because this this burnishes the legend and the myth that is New Orleans in a lot of ways. Yeah, sort of dark chicken and the egg. Mm. Yeah, I think that it, if I'm remembering correctly in your story, you quoted Miriam Davis, um, the expert, which um, you consulted a lot for this piece. She said something about how bringing like this notorious murder together with jazz. There's something very sexy about that. Yeah. About that sort of storytelling, especially in a place like New Orleans. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an interesting way that she put that. But I, th I think there is some truth to it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, maybe sexiness isn't necessarily the word I would use, but there definitely yeah. is uh, something kind of enigmatic and something sort of morbidly grabbing, um, to say the least. And, and it really does sound like something that you know, couldn't possibly have been formulated by even a Hollywood screenwriter to be this theatrical and this dramatic. Uh, I can only imagine what it was like to actually live through that point in time. Well, for those who are not familiar with the the outlines of the story, what are we talking about? When did this take place, Alex? Um, who were the Axeman's victims? What did the Axeman what the, was the Axeman known to do? Mm, so those are all excellent questions, and they're also very difficult questions because, as I mentioned, there's a lot of different experts with uh, sort of differing research on this. And um, even looking at the newspaper archives, there's sort of differing opinions on which of these murders or attempted murders, they weren't all successful, um, that were attributed to the Axeman were actually him. And that's part of why I'm so grateful to Miriam Davis. Um, and, and I interviewed her for this. I also utilized her book, the Axeman of New Orleans as kind of my, my primary resource in addition to digging through those Times-Picayune and other newspaper archives because she really does a lot to overturn a lot of the most commonly accepted theories about the Axeman and a lot of the things that I had taken at face value myself and, and even used to perpetuate myself giving tours that after reading her book, uh, I kind of like I'm looking back on going, oh, goodness, uh, that makes a lot more sense when you put it like that because I was under the impression that the Axeman didn't start his reign of terror until 1918, um, particularly because there's a very famous letter. This letter is kind of one of the most notorious 
artifacts and just sort of pieces of of media that gets associated with the Axeman and with this case. And I really think contributes to why it's been so mythologized. This letter was published in 1919. And most people think that those attacks didn't begin by the Axeman or whoever we attribute the Axeman to be. Again, that murderer was never caught. But Marion Davis really makes an excellent point that there's several attacks that began back in 1910 and 1911 that fit the exact pattern of the Axeman murders. Now, back at that point in time, there was actually a changing of hands with the New Orleans police chief uh, between those two periods, um, between 1911, when, when those first attacks that they attribute to a different killer called the Cleaver stopped, and in 1918, when what are most commonly believed to be the Axeman attacks began, um, there was a, a trade-off. The, the New Orleans police superintendent um, ended up uh, resigning and there was a new superintendent in place. And so Davis asserts that partially because of that change of power, there wasn't really a connection made at the time that all of these 1910-1911 cases fit the exact pattern that there was a killer who was entering people's homes in the middle of the night through usually a very small uh, little you know, hole he would carve in a door. He'd usually cut a panel out so that he could reach around and uh, unlock the door through that. He would enter people's homes in the middle of the night and terrifyingly would attack them with an axe or a hatchet as they slept. And generally, as, as most serial killers these days, we know fit a profile or they tend to have a profile of their victims that's consistent. Um, these tended to be Sicilian or Italian grocers or other small business owners. And those 1910 and 1911 attacks do fit those profiles and, uh, and, and that sort of description of how the killer went about it. So I think Davis made a great point that those 1910 and 1911 cases probably were the same killer that we today think of as the Axeman. Wow, that is just that yeah too much similarity unless it goes down to copycat murders right which somebody else um with a similar axe to grind if that's not (laughs) too painful to say um took inspiration from the earlier ones and picked up where the other left off i actually think chris is in your story you the uh, book that you quoted uh they actually suggested that right didn't the authors of that book some of them <clears throat> about this era of the axe man. Yeah, there's this era of va- axe violence, and they point out this is uh, the man from the train by uh, Bill James and Rachel McCarty James. They point out that one, you just pick up ideas. There's this contagion of ideas, and so you hear about just using an axe. You're like, oh, axes, huh? <laughs> they they also point out that it's an extremely common weapon of convenience. You have people heating with wood, even in a lot of cities. Everyone has an axe. It's always outside. It's always convenient. If you don't want to arm yourself before you find your victims, if you want to travel light, you can be pretty confident in a small townhouse in, and definitely on a country property. There's an axe and it will work for your purposes. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to use. Everybody knows how. Um, and if I'm right, this was typical too, wasn't it, Alex, that the um, the weapon was typically one that was picked up 
at the victim's house. Exactly. And yeah. And I think that's yeah. part of what's so terrifying about this case. And a lot of these earliest, early 20th century Axeman cases, like you pointed out, Chris, is these were household items. You know, everyone had an axe lying around. And, and that's what the Axeman was using, was people's own axes or hatchets that he would grab from their own properties. And it's not like I think to us it's sinister because we so seldom chop wood. But I think to them it's just an everyday tool until it's pulled out of context. Yeah, it's like getting strangled with your laptop charging cable these days. Oh, <laughs> Something like that, you know, just a mundane household item. Oh, uh, so okay then. So the other piece of this, which really further notoriety that you actually uh, that you referenced just before, Alex, was the letter that was published that was purporting to be from the. The Axeman himself, right? Oh, or, yes. Oh, yes. This I think letter. You, I think you'd better let us in on yeah, that. Yeah. So, y'all, as I said, this letter is really, I think, largely the reason that this case has been so mythologized because it is del- delightfully creepy. And in, in retrospect, I say delightfully. I'm sure at the time it was just absolutely terrifying. Um, very creepy, very theatrical. And it, it was actually received originally by the editors of the Times-Picayune. And I have to say, as a journalist, I am both very grateful and a little bit jealous that we don't get more letters like this <laughs> that are addressed from hell, because I really do think that would keep things interesting. But um, as I said, the letter is addressed from hell. Uh, it, it was received on March 13th, 1919. And um, for a little context, y'all, this came right after a particularly brutal attack. I mean, and all of these attacks were brutal. Of course, this guy's sneaking into people's homes, bludging them with axes or hatchets in the middle of the night. I mean, it's not not pleasant stuff. But this came um, just a few weeks after a really violent attack on the Cortamiglia family who lived on the West Bank, right across the river from New Orleans in Gretna. Now, the Cortamiglias, um, the, this was um, a couple. It was, it was uh, Joe and Rosie, a married couple and a two-year-old daughter named Mary. Um, now, basically, Rosie, the wife, woke up in the middle of the night to her husband having sort of a, a struggle with this sort of shadowed figure in their dark bedroom. And um, Unfortunately, that figure proceeded to attack her husband and then herself and then the baby Mary as well. And um, while Rosie and and her husband barely would survive, their two-year-old daughter Mary, unfortunately, um, did not. So y'all can imagine, you know, that this attack on a child especially was really jarring for the city. So people were very shaken up. This came after a string of a lot of other attacks at this point in 1919. They'd been gearing up for the past sort of year and a half Um since those first cases back in 1910 and 1911. And and Davis points out it's reasonable to assume that killer might have been arrested for burglary or another, another you know, pettier crime in the meantime, since clearly burglary was, was sort of a penchant of his. But the letter says, Hell, March 13th, 1919, to the editor of the Times-Picayune, esteemed mortal. Gotta love the opener. They have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a fell demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come again and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe besmeared with the blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. 
If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way in which they've conducted their investigation in the past. In fact, they've been so utterly stupid as to amuse not only me, but his satanic majesty. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think there is any such need of a warning, for I feel sure that your police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. And then, you know, he goes on with some more threats. Undoubtedly, your Linians think of me as the most horrible murderer, which I am, but could be worse if I wanted to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Really just sort of building this this sort of character of this satanic demon who has infinite murderous capabilities. But here's where it gets good, y'all. And here's where jazz music comes into play. And I really think so much of the reason why why we still love this case so much today. He says, <clears throat> now, to be exact, at 12.15 o'clock, earthly time, you got to appreciate the specification, uh, earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to the people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose house a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going well, then so much the better for the people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of those people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, and it's about that time I've left your homely earth, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, and will be, the worst spirit that has ever existed in fact or the realm of fancy, the Axeman. Yeah, love and hugs. Yeah, Brava. <laughs> hugs and kisses. You know, okay, as editors, you three... If that came across, what would be the what would be the choice? Oh, would I, you publish it? Be hard not to. I would be so hard mm. not to. Can't really fact check it. That, no. And that's a great question, James, because uh, while the Times-Picayune clearly made the choice to publish this, mm. there were other local newspapers in the New Orleans area that did not think they should have and were very actually publicly critical and even published their own responses to it, criticizing the Times-Picayune for publishing it. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, for like, causing think. mass hysteria. Yeah. There's also the possibility that it was actually written by a record company executive. Mm. That side as well. well, that is an actual... Right? Oh, is that a, is that an actual? No, that is that, that. So that's the theory that I think is the most viable. Not quite a record executive. You're close. I don't think we were quite at that point in recording yet. Um, but Davis's theory. Well, and first of all, this, this is based on some some pretty good information. So Davis actually spoke with a modern criminal profiler, um, in addition to a criminal profiler who currently works with the Georgia Bureau of Investigations. Um, now, having listened to the Up and Vanished podcast, I'm going to pretend like I've forgotten everything I know about the GBI from that, where they don't do the best work. But anyway, this guy from the GBI who Davis talks to basically says... We know without a shadow of the doubt, or we can certainly assume based on everything we know about modern criminal profiling, which is, is pretty accurate in general, weirdly enough, the Axeman would have been a working class, uneducated white guy. Um, and we know that not only from the criminal profilers, we also know from witness accounts that it was absolutely a white man. Um, 
Multiple witnesses reported that, that he did not speak Italian. He spoke English with no accent. But uh, you can look at this letter and see this is clearly an educated dude, right? You know, Tartarus, Tartarus, right? I know. Classical education. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That that sort of thing doesn't come cheap. No, it sure doesn't. Um, And you can only imagine back then, you know, it was probably even harder to access at that point in time. So you've got this clearly guy, this guy with a classical education. who has got some kind of lofty language he's using. He clearly likes to jazz it, quote unquote, which, God, you got to love that as a verb. But um, but. It doesn't really make sense that that would have been the same individual that committed all of these murders. Davis and these experts she talks to thinks it's much more likely that it was somebody who had an incentive to market jazz music. This kind of goes back to back to Chris's joke about how really you can't beat murder as far as marketing goes. It's going to get people talking. And there was a gentleman at the time who did have some incentive to publish something like this. Now, this was a composer, a jazz composer um, at this time who lived in New Orleans named uh, Joseph John. I'm not sure if it's Davila or Davia, um, but Joseph Joseph John Davila um, was a New Orleans jazz musician. And the very night that the letter said that the Axeman was going to pass over New Orleans, which which absolutely worked, by the way, they published that letter and it caused mass hysteria. They say that there was not a home or a venue in New Orleans that was not blaring either jazz playing from their their um, record players or they had live jazz bands playing. Um, whether or not people really thought the letter was legitimate, and apparently a lot of people at the time did think it was probably a hoax or probably someone being dramatic, you know, trying to sort of uh, play on the situation. Um, A lot of people did take it seriously as well. And apparently both the people who kind of dismissed it as well as the people who were genuinely terrified, none of them wanted to take their chances. And we like an excuse for a party anyway. So uh, apparently, you know, there there was a lot of music that night. And that very night is when this composer says that he wrote the song that to this day, you know, if we have any uh, jazz fans listening, you may recognize this title, The Axeman's Jazz, subtitled Don't Scare Me, Papa. And uh, he said that he published that song, you know, directly after that night, that he wrote it that night. And the Times-Picayune even published a later article where they spoke to him about it. And they said, quote, he admits that he finished the composition at about 2 a.m. Wednesday after he was sure the Axeman had no designs on him personally. And, uh, and you know, the cover of the sheet music is this illustration. And we actually we did publish it with the article so you would be able to find that in the show notes. But. This cover of the sheet music is this illustration of this family frantically playing jazz music as they terrifiedly look out the door. And it really just captures this anxiety of the whole situation. But not only did Davila write this song and and have another article published about it in the Times-Picayune shortly thereafter, but as I was doing my research on this, one of the most common things that kept coming up in the Times-Picayune archives when you search the Axeman is advertisements that Joseph John Davila paid for for his music and had placed sort of continuing to play on these murders. I have a scorching hot take. What's that? Is he the killer? Ooh, well, I think American Horror Story would say so, right? Uh, American Horror Story Coven, which I haven't seen in its entirety, admittedly, but I know they depict the X-Man as a saxophone player who is like secretly going off and doing all these murders. So I do like that theory. That is a fun one as far as theatrics go. But but I do have to say, I think Davis is right and makes an excellent point that that while it, it certainly would be interesting to imagine this jazz obsessed serial killer or some musician who's got the secret bloodlust who is going and committing all these murders. If you look at 
at the pattern that these murders follow. They are consistently Italian or Sicilian grocers, particularly small business owners at this point in time. And Davis in her book, she takes a lot of a lot of words and a lot of pages to explain the role that Italians and Sicilians had in society in Louisiana at that point in time and how impressive it was and sort of against the odds that they were able to immigrate to the United States. And in many cases, within less than a generation, were able to start their own businesses successfully. Um, And I think it's reasonable to assume that there might have been individuals in New Orleans who were resentful of of that success from immigrants, Um, which is unfortunate. But I do think that's probably a little more likely than the jazz obsessed serial killer. And I think that's that's an excellent point. But, um, you know, it's an unfortunate case because in lieu of them finding the actual axe man, you can imagine there are a lot of theories. Um, there's a lot of theories today that we throw around. But even at the time, there were some some wrongful arrests made. And and that, I think, is one of the saddest things about this case. You know, I mentioned the Cortamiglias, um, which was the family that was attacked right before that that letter was published in the Times-Picayune. And the Cortamiglias, as luck would have it, had recently had a, a lease dispute with their neighbors, the Giordanos, another Italian family. Um, you know, the Cortamiglias had leased the Giordanos grocery from them for some time, and the Giordanos had recently decided they wanted to take that back and run it themselves. And um, the Cortamiglias ended up opening their own grocery right next door anyway. So you can see there were some tensions between those families, though it's said that the families were still on good terms. And in fact, Frank Giordano, the 17-year-old son of the neighboring family to the Cortamiglias, is said to have loved Mary, the little two-year-old baby that they had who was who was brutally murdered. There's even a photo of Frank Giordano holding this child. It's a really cute photo. Um, and, and that's at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, in the early 1900s, when it would have really taken some effort to have that photo taken and preserved. So you can tell they did have a good relationship between the families. And it really is just a set of tragic circumstances that uh, Rosie Cortamiglia, after she was released from Charity Hospital, was brought to Jefferson Parish Jail, where she was essentially told that she wouldn't be released until she gave the name of the individual who had attacked her family. And she told the doctors at Charity Hospital she didn't know who that was, without a shadow of doubt. She had no idea, um, probably because of the head trauma that's consistently a problem in these cases. But she ends up saying it was Frank Giordano and his father, Yorondo. And unfortunately, Frank and his father are both arrested. And and um, and Frank himself actually is uh, is sentenced to hang. And they will spend a couple of years in, in a jail in the West Bank to the point where Frank's sister and Yorando's daughter gets married. And, and there's an account in the paper of the wedding party going to visit them in the prison after the ceremony just so they can include them in the day when really these guys didn't do anything. And sure enough, eventually, thank goodness, Rosie Cortamiglia actually goes into the times picky offices and recounts her testimony saying, you know what, without a shadow of a doubt, they did not do it. They were not involved in my daughter's murder. They did not attack us and they were released, thank goodness. But that's just one example of how sort of convoluted this case got at that time. And when we look back on it as this theatrical, dramatic, fascinating story, you know, you really do have to keep in mind that these were real people and and so many real lives that were impacted in in such a horrible way. It's an incredible story. Um, if you haven't read it, it, the story is The Axe Man of New Orleans, the history behind the Crescent City's unsolved axe murders. Uh, it appears in the October 22 edition of Country Roads magazine, and you can find a link to that article in the show notes of this episode. Alex, it's an amazing story. And um, oh, thank you did you for a doing fantastic it. job. Yeah. 
Very yeah. thorough job reporting on it, too. It was quite a journey to oh, work on. Oh, a little on too thorough. I know we, we were all in this boat, but, you know, at some point it was like 10 p.m. and I'm deep in the Times-Picayune archives, you know, reading an article about someone's exposed brains, just going, why did I pitch this? Yeah. But ultimately, I'm glad I did. And uh, and as much as I rambled there, there's so much more to this case. I mean, uh, the Sicilian oh, yeah. blackhand theories, the the later connection with the mafia, and, and someone who's actually avenged in Los Angeles years later, who many people think was the Axeman, myself and... And Miriam Davis personally don't, but de- definitely worth giving it a read and looking into Davis's book if you're interested in this case. Well, as as said, uh, mm-hmm. the thing about serial killer stories is they seem to belong in threes. Jordan, why don't you tell us how the third one came about? Yes, well, as we said before, it um, it's actually the story that kind of got us talking about doing this right, serial third, killer issue. Um, yeah, it's arguably the first. Uh, Chris's fascinating story on the history of. Clementine Barnabay. Um, Is it Clementine? Yeah, am I saying that right, Chris? I don't know. I have never heard it said aloud by someone who knew in my mind. She is Clementine Barnabet, Mm. which is almost certainly incorrect. And I wouldn't argue with you at all. But um, yeah, tell us about this story. When you open in your article, I very much appreciated how you use, I'll, I'll even read it. You say that the records on this case are Quote, quote, iffy, incomplete, overwrought, racist, incredulous to varying degrees, which presents obvious challenges in trying to tell this story accurately or to give it um, justice. So tell us about that process. So at a certain point, you just accept that you're going to find the most reputable secondary sources and go with them. So you ha- So to set up the story a little bit, there's a very famous unsolved axe murder of white people in 1912 in Iowa, the Velisca axe murders. And this um, family of seven and of guests are murdered with an axe in the night. Um, it's a very fascinating, convoluted story. It happens outside Louisiana. Look it up. Um, but at one point in the investigation, one of the police officers just says, I I don't know, it might well be some Negro cult or something. Th- this is in rural-ish southwestern Iowa. There's a very small, if any, black population, and there's no real cult activity. The reason this was in his mind is because of the news coverage of the, finger quote, Clementine Barnabet murders. So in beginning in, it's, these murders are so iffily reported and so difficult to track down that you can't even really be sure who belongs. But beginning in 1909 or 1910, there's a series of very savage family annihilation murders of African-American families in Southwest Louisiana. There's one in Rain, there's one in Crowley, there's one in Lafayette, there's one in Lake Charles. And there are intermittently assigned ones in other parts of Louisiana, there's one in Texas, uh, maybe there's one in Mississippi, uh, maybe. But these are the core ones that are probably this person. And are there similarities it, between them all, but between the the way in which the families are killed and the rest? To an extent, they're all largely killed with axes. There's some in if you're recent researching axe murders, you quickly learn there is a difference between people using the butt of the axe and doing sort of a bludgeoning action versus trying to chop. Yeah. It is more and this is grim, but it is more 
efficient to use the butt, you're less likely to miss, you're less likely to have a grazing blow, it's you're more likely to get where you're going. Um, and so some of these are with the blade, some of these are with the butt. Um, one man of the house is shot, there are knife wounds on someone else, and so they have similarities, but they're not the sort of Oh, and here is our very strict pattern that we're sort of used to in like the modern serial killer discourse. Um, and so they wind up arresting this man named Raymond Barnabet, who this is one of my favorite things in the whole world, is found guilty initially of the first set of murders, the first two sets of murders, and then uh, the first two or three sets of murders. As I said, the boundaries are extremely fluid. Um, the court grants him a new trial because he was drunk during the first one. Not his attorney, not the judge, not the jury. Raymond himself was drunk during the first trial. And so they're like, yeah, we'll give you a do-over. But, but, <laughs> Indicating a potential world in which as long as your connection comes through, you can just ride this out for years. Let me see. Um, I've got a court date tomorrow. Anyone go out on a bender with me? Yeah. yeah. Does it still work? We'll see. And so, as I write, fortunately only for Raymond, another family is murdered while he awaits his trial. Um, there's murders in Lafayette. Um, his daughter, Clementine is working nearby. She's about 17 at the time. She's working as a domestic and she sees like the people running back and forth. Supposedly she heard the screams when the bodies were discovered. And because her father's already under suspicion and because she's close enough, she comes under suspicion. They And then there's this whole thing about bloody clothes that are found in her closet, but could this possibly have been her menstrual cycle? Could these have been contaminated by other crime scene evidence? It's very, it, it's very small town white police officers investigating black on black crime slapdash. I should, I, if I didn't make this clear earlier, all of the suspects in this and all of the victims are black, a couple are mixed race, but this is very much a intra-black phenomenon, which is part of why it's reported on so hysterically. Um, so Clementine is 17. Her father's just been convicted of murder. She's just been near these extremely violent murders. And she just confesses, and she just keeps on confessing. And it's this long thing about so there's this particularly sinister aspect to um the last if it is the last murder in lake charles um a the broussard family in lake charles are murdered someone writes on the wall the word human five the phrase human five and a verse from the ninth psalm um, when he maketh inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble, which is a slight misquote of the King James Version as it was reported in Uncle Tom's Cabin. So this is this is a literate person, this is a reading person who found this, but they're not they're you know, they're not perfect. This is this is probably an error. Um also I would also say that the annihilation of an entire family in the night is an error. Um so there's and you know, al already there's going to be this fear around such violence, but then this apparent 
call to the supernatural becomes very much part of the story. So Clementine is confessing, oh, she did it because she's the woman of the sacrifice cult. She's the head of this human sacrifice cult. She's killing them for human sacrifice, but she's also, there are some lines in it where she indicates that there's sexual pleasure in it, but then she doesn't build on that the way you would expect the confession of a sexually motivated killer to do. It does, It's not internally consistent. She fudges her date. She fudges her quantities. She'll say someone was at a murder with her, and then she'll say, oh, no, then I came back to the house and they were there. And so in none of it's None of it would stand up in a court of law today or probably in in an era with more on-the-spot court reporting. It's very it's very messy. And so they they kind of ultimately split the difference. They convict her of one of the murders of the 17 or so. And they send her to Angola for 10 years and they mentioned that they perform an operation on her to return her to normality it is not totally clear what it is it's too early for it to be a lobotomy probably lobotomies really take off in the 20s and this is in 1913 i want to say and she's there for 10 years and if they really thought she killed 17 people with an axe you know even even in an era in which black lives were not valued you cannot have some you simply cannot have something that disorderly happening. You simply cannot have people's employees being murdered. If they thought she was really guilty, they would not have let her out. And she steps out of Angola ten years later and into legend and no one knows what befell her. But the you know, then the afterlife begins. During the trial, during the series of murders, this is reported on not everywhere in the world, but it gets really far front flung, and people know. Like people hear about it. So then you have this policeman in Iowa. You have a police report in India talking about their, 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 they bring up this whole family that was murdered. Well, that family never existed. That's part of this building. And you have people be like, well, they were killing five families of five. Absolutely no accounting of victims makes that perfect square. The families aren't the right size. They're, yeah, maybe there are five, but there are not five families of five people. And so if you Google Clementine Barnabet today, you get this um, threadbare Wikipedia entry and you get a lot of stuff that like the clickbait articles, they're like, did you know there was a black teenage serial killer in Louisiana (laughs) and she killed all these people because she was in a cult and she killed all these people. She did it herself with her own little hands. And you, you have this really like sort of credulous, like, okay, that happened um, attitude towards it. And, but if you look closely and if you look at some of the more like the man from the train, like I mentioned, there's a an article. I'll find the citation so you can put in the show notes from something like the American Homicide Working Group or something. They're like, this doesn't this is pretty much just how false confessions happen. Like people get really scared and then they just start talking until they accidentally say what you want. And so this legend builds up that's kind of on the edges of like Louisiana mythos and Louisiana culture true crime of this um and you, you've seen the illustrations you've gotten them of this like so she mentions voodoo at one point because she and her friends went out to i think they went to lafayette i don't remember offhand to buy a voodoo charm which is the kind of things teenagers do especially in a place where like voodoo and syncretic religions are like part of the thing you know they wanted a charm to get people to do their bidding they're like this is 
absolutely like light as a feather, yeah. stiff as a board stuff. This exactly. Is, and and from that, and from these inscriptions on the wall in this murder that I don't think she committed, builds this like nebulous, never really addressed idea that there was this woman, this teenage, this girl, really, who just killed all these people with an axe because she was like this horny voodoo devil yeah. woman. And it's not true, but it's much more mm-hmm. interesting. It's much more of a coherent story than teenager blamed for things she was probably uninvolved in. Maybe they were connected. Maybe they weren't. Rec- records do not right. extend and that we far. we do not know who did it. Yeah. Well, and, and today, I think the idea of a coerced confession is something that we've seen enough times, you know, and, and with the way true crime has become popularized, we know that that's a high possibility. But I think it's hard to wrap your head around otherwise why she would confess. Because, again, we know from the profiles, and I even think we got an Instagram comment saying this going, well, I doubt she did it because most serial killers are white men, which, of course, we do know is the case. And, and there is some validity to that. But it does raise the question of what would the motive be to confess if not? And I think you do a really good job, Chris, of explaining why that might be the case for a young black woman in a white criminal justice system with all of this, this confusion and these emotions surrounding the case. Well, and and if you read accounts of false confessions, you know, no one thinks they will do it. And they're like, and then you're just in the room and the police are yelling at you. Right, right. Yeah. That yeah. intimidation factor. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And in and in the end... But, you know, the the fact that the story gains a life of its own that has is only even peripherally related to the to the people who are involved in the original speaks more to society's desire and willingness to have these kinds of stories to tell. And particularly maybe in Louisiana culture where we love a good story, love mm-hmm. a good horror story. Um, it fits so neatly into the way in which the legend of itself uh, is manifested that 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 story will always be repeated and perpetuated and embellished as time goes on. Mm-hmm. And each time it's repeated, it's and um, it, it changes shortened little, and yeah. made more cohesive, right. and details are left out. Right, but the yeah. moment that voodoo enters the equation, yeah, um, then you're off and running. Yeah. You hardly need any more gas on that fire, do you? Yeah. Right. It already gets mythologized enough on its own. But but Chris, I have to say, I do love the way that you end this piece, especially. And you do kind of give a, an imagined life back to Clementine because we really don't know much about what happens to her when she gets out of Angola. But I do love that you kind of uh, sort of conjecture about what that might have been. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to ask if you wouldn't mind reading your last line for us, because I really do think that it's a uh, it's excellent. Um, yeah. If she was indeed innocent, one hopes she led a happy life, perhaps winning the occasional argument by saying quietly, calmly, now don't push me. You know what they say I did. <laughs> and I, you. I do want to add one more point. Um, and I do not remember her name, which is frustrating, but I will give it to you for the show notes. I say in here that she's never gotten this case has never gotten the detail obsessed champion that it requires. You know, there are, pe- there are people who can tell you who can write out freehand Lizzie Borden's day. There are people who've like, you know, there are people who have like counted Bell Gunness's victims. You know, every, these cases get their champions. You say that as if you haven't done that with Lizzie Borden. I, yeah, I, no, I absolutely <laughs> have. And, and there are people worse than me about it. Um, 
there is an academic who works on black people and crime and like crime sensationalism in this era. Um, and she wrote her dissertation on Clementine Barnabet. And she's I my understand this was at UT, University of Texas. My understanding is that she's got it optioned for publication. Wow, so I'm very I'm very excited that she's doing that because I'm very much looking forward to reading it. And there was a dizzy six weeks when I thought I was going to write a book about Clementine Barnabet and it was exciting and terrifying. <laughs> And so now, the, and so now the cup has passed. <laughs> is that with some? Is that with a a, a a moment of relief that you realize that that doesn't have to be done, Chris? Or does that feel like a missed opportunity? What I have told people is that I'll let her book come out, and if it is for popular readership, great, it's done. That that gap is filled. If it's more academic, if it's not general. Okay, maybe. Right. Maybe and you can use her years. as a great source in that case. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Let her do the hard work. <laughs> T- tell me about this archive. Yes, exactly. Exactly there. Fantastic, guys. Thank you. Well, I, this was the three features that made up the Myths and Legends issue of Country Roads October 2022 edition. Um, and uh, it was, I think, one of our best. It was a great fun to put together. Yeah. Um, as we said before, that Louisiana is full of myths and legends and if you are listening to this and you know of a story that you think would fit into a myths and legends issue please do reach out to us at detours at countryroadsmag.com that's right if this is your first time listening and you like what you heard and if you're still with us at this point we're going to assume that you do Please subscribe to Detours, give us a rating, and maybe even send it to a friend. And if you're not already reading Country Roads magazine, you probably should be. To read online, find a copy, or subscribe to have the monthly issues delivered to your door, visit countryroadsmag.com. Detours is written, presented, and produced by us, the editorial team at Country Roads magazine, James Fox-Smith, Jordan LaHaye-Fontenot, and Alexandra Kenner. Our theme music was written and recorded by Bill Daniel and Sam Shaheen of Naughty Professor and produced by Bill Daniel at Wild Child Studios in New Orleans. The Detours logo and other associated artwork was created by Country Roads Magazine's creative director, Courtney Zimmerman. And the audio editing for this season was done by me, Jordan Lange with the help from Alexandra Kinnan and Sam Shaheen. We'd also like to thank the East Baton Rouge Parish Library's River Center branch, particularly Wesley Morgan, for allowing us to utilize the recording studio in their maker's space to record several episodes for this first season and for helping us along the way. So, until our next detour, don't be a stranger. You can always reach us at detours at countryroadsmag.com. And thanks for listening.